Well, here's the youth ministry intro to this sermon. The story was told of a young man who thought he had found her. There she was. Everything she had hoped for. She, she was beautiful. She was intelligent. She was funny. She had great friends. She had a, a great uh, just a, a presence as she strut around the campus. This was a you might say a tier one type girl. Uh, as far as he was concerned, she was it. And what's more, they just seemed to have everything in common, they, almost everything. Uh, there was this little thing about her being a, a science fiction buff. Well, he didn't know the difference between a Romulan and a Hobbit. But it wasn't a big deal because he said, well, I got Amazon, I can go online, and he ordered five Star Wars t-shirts, including the one with the pointy-eared guy that said, live long and prosper. He even changed uh, his, the name of his garage band to the Wookiees, and uh, it worked. She, she bought it. So he, you know, as, as you do, you get that notebook sheet of paper, and you write the two little uh, hand-drawn boxes in there, yes or no, would you like to take a spin around the galaxy with me? And you fold it up ten times, impossibly small, have your friends deliver it, and then he received it back, and after about a half an hour of trying to unfold this thing, saw that the box marked yes was checked, yes! Ah! An invitation came not long after that to a, a party, a small gathering of friends, at her house, he was going. Everything was going great. Party in full swing. People were having a great time chatting, enjoying, uh, enjoying the evening together. Eye contact was made. Do you remember that? That's a big deal. There was even a moment where for a, a, a brief second, their hands touched as they reached into the bowl of Doritos at the same time. Things were great. But then all of a sudden, she got up. She walked out of the room, and he thought, what's going on? Maybe, maybe she's going to get dessert. I don't know. She walks in and shouts, it's game time. And to his just utter dismay, she held in her hands Trivial Pursuit, Star Wars Classic, Trilogy Collector's Edition. Which to him was not a game. This was a lie detector test. <laughs> and that fateful moment came where when asked who was Luke Skywalker's father, and he said, Captain James T. Kirk. <laughs> and it was over. The tragic tale. One that I take no pleasure in sharing with you. But uh, what makes it all the more painful is this is not an isolated occurrence. This type of thing happens all the time. All the time. You know, it's one thing to play pretend when you're, when you're a young child. That's, that's great. That's acceptable. Everyone expects it. It's a whole other thing to pr play pretend when you are all grown up. The price of pretending, it goes up, doesn't it? It goes up. And it's especially true when it happens in the church. And turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 4, verse 32. We're about to find out that you're never too old to play pretend. No, you're never too old. But playing Christian 
can have serious consequences. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. And we'll just walk through the passage this morning. It says this. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. We'll pause right there for just a second. So we've been reading about a, a, a seeming rise in resistance to the message of the gospel that was going forth, right? We saw that Peter and John were arrested. We saw there is, there is tension there. Things are beginning to heat up just a little bit. And yet in the midst of all of that, you see Christians gathering together. And what are they doing? They're taking care of each other. Those who have, have, have placed their trust in Jesus Christ, turned their back on their old lives of sin, and, and now embraced the gospel, embraced Jesus, had been united together as the Holy Spirit indwelled them, recognizing that, that all of these believers now gathered here, this is, this is one body here. And so we got to take care of each other. It resulted in them taking care of each other. 5,000, probably more men now, and women and children, Luke records, they were of one heart and one soul. You know, Jesus said, and we've, we've mentioned this a few times recently, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That was happening. We see that clear as day. This was God's design all along, that his people, his church, might reflect that loving unity that has existed from eternity past in the Godhead, in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus prayed, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Jesus says, Father, that's what I want for these people. I want them to be one, and I want to bring them in to this loving fellowship, this unity that I have known with you from eternity past. I want that. You know, as God's people care for each other, as they sacrificially serve one another, joyfully give up their worldly possessions, even the sense of security that comes with them, they paint a picture to the whole world of what God is like. And that is good. There's something powerful here in this passage. 
as the people of the early church. They, they cared for each other, and they continued preaching the good news of Jesus Christ and, and repentance, faith in him. You know what they were doing? They were fulfilling the greatest commandments and the great commission. Jesus was asked by the Pharisees, the greatest commandment, what, what is it? And Jesus replies, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. They're doing that, aren't they? They're loving God and they're loving each other. And just before Jesus ascended into heaven, he commanded his disciples, go. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. I'm with you always to the end of the age. Friends, this is the example set before us. This is the mandate that has been given And what the early church is doing here is exactly what we as Bethany should desire to emulate here amongst us. What they were all about is exactly what we should be all about. Exactly. In fact, our our constitution bakes it right in there, doesn't it? I don't know if you recall the way back to January when we were looking at this new constitution. One of the things that did not change is first and foremost being all about the great, greatest commandments and the great commission. It reads like this now. It says, we the people of Bethany Bible Fellowship, we exist for the glory of God and the good of his people as we faithfully obey the great commission and greatest commandments. We share the hope of salvation we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. We speak the truth of revealed scripture. We humbly and joyfully serve the king of all kings. That purpose, that's, that's, that's tied to the purpose that Christ has given us. It's nothing unique. Maybe it's, 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 it's got some, some, some of our our language in there, but essentially it is the greatest commandments and it is the greatest commission. That's what it boils down to. That's what we are in writing. That's what we're all about in writing. But the question is, is that what we're all about in practice? Boy, that's a big question, isn't it? If, if Luke were to write a few paragraphs about Bethany Bible Fellowship What would he say? What would he say that we're marked by? Are we marked by loving care for each other? And a bold witness to the world? Or would he say something more like what John records in those letters in the book of Revelation? Have we abandoned our first love like the church at Ephesus, Revelation 24, or 2.4. Maybe we're gritting our teeth. Maybe we're hunkering down. Maybe we are enduring hardship with all kinds of perseverance, and yet we've lost a, a passion for joyfully worshiping and enjoying our God. Or maybe we're like the church at Pergamum, following the teachings of Balaam, 
indulging in all sorts of, of, of sexual sin. We confess with our lips this desire to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all of our mind. But behind closed doors, we're visiting secret lovers. Do we have a reputation for being alive like the church has at Sardis, but have the kind of faith that's dead because it just produces nothing? Are we a church that claims to, to, to love each other, but are found under the microscope to be full of bitterness and harsh words and, and selfish ambition and unforgiveness? Perhaps we're like the church at Laodicea. Neither hot nor cold. We think we've got it all figured out. We've got it all together. We think we know our Bibles. We think the blessing of God is upon us. Maybe we're experiencing kind of life on, on easy street. There's no complaints. There's no real problems. And there's no real passion for reaching a lost world with the message of Jesus. Maybe we go through the motions. Maybe we do churchy things. Maybe we even look out at all these other churches out there that are having all these problems. We say, <laughs> look at them. Glad we don't have those. It's kind of naive, isn't it? And what a sad thing it is to think that you've got it all together. To look down your nose at others when you don't really even have a clue that you are the one to be pitied. Boy, we don't want to be like any of those churches, do we? There's no room for pretenders in, in God's kingdom. You're either his church, a, a genuine, spirit-filled, people-loving, Christ-proclaiming, holiness-pursuing church, or you may still be in darkness. You're either his church living in line with his divinely spelled-out purposes, or it's possible that you're just a, a group of people that, that call yourselves a church and will never be welcomed into the eternal kingdom. Boy, we don't want to be Christ church in name only, do we? Neither do you want to be Christian in name only. Only. No way, because the authenticity of your conversion, it makes or breaks how you will spend eternity. There's a big temptation for people to be Christians in name only. There's certain perceived advantages of knowing you've got your, your ticket to heaven and being able to do whatever you want here on earth. And, and yet God sees right through that. Jeremiah 17, 10, he says, The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand it? Yeah, who can understand it? And we look around out there on the news all the time and go, How on earth did they do that? Or did they vote that way? Or did they make that decision in life? Who can understand it? And God says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. And so to the one who thinks he can have it both ways, that, that he somehow pulled the wool over God's eyes, 
will somehow sneak his way past into the, 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 into past the pearly gates, God's word essentially says, I'm sorry, you're mistaken. And someone might say, well, that's pretty narrow-minded. That's pretty uh, fanatical, actually. That sounds rather uh, extremist. Well, it really doesn't matter what you call it. If it's truth, it's truth. On the, day, on the day of judgment, some people might think that they're going to just raise their hands and go, God, how dare you? How could you be like that? You're not the God that I imagined. <laughs> but the reality is that's not going to happen. In fact, even the, the hardest, most defiant hearts, they're going to have zero ability to deny the absolute perfection of God's wisdom and righteous judgments. Romans 14.10 tells us that. We'll all stand before the judgment seat of God. We'll find ourselves there. <laughs> it's written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. And people can think all they want, whatever they want, about God and his word. But make no mistake, there will come a day when they will acknowledge that he is right. He's always been right. And he has the right to call the shots. And that brings us to Acts chapter 5. Verse 1. So these people, they were selling their possessions. And it, that was very impressive. Taking care of the needs of others in, in their church body. This, this has the flavor of authenticity here. Exactly what Jesus ordered. Just like today, property back then, it was a form of security. This was, this was where the retirement money was held in some cases. But with their newfound trust in this all-sovereign God who was, they believed was holding this incorruptible, incorruptible, imperishable inheritance for them in heaven, they, they'd loosened their grip on all these worldly possessions, all of that worldly security. We, we don't really need this as much as we thought we did anymore. And maybe we actually can, can let go of some of this if it's going to help God's people here. And they made in eternal investments pouring into their fellow believers. This is, this is really incredible. It's, it's impressive. Especially concerning that they, they, they just handed over the money to the apostles. They, they didn't say, you know what, I'm going to sell my, my goods here. I'm going to have some cash in reserve, and I'm going to look out at the congregation. I'm going to decide who's worthy here, who's really needy, and how my money can best be used here. I, I'd really like to see this happen here, so I'm going to distribute my money this way. No, 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 they, they didn't even do that. They just said, here, uh, apostles, here's, here's what we have. We just want you to, to, to steward this wisely and take care of our fellow believers. That is impressive. And apparently there were other people in the church that were impressed by this as well. And that's what was behind the inspiration for one man and his wife to sell the property that they had. Look at verse 1. It says, But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property 
And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. What just happened here? So this is a man and his wife. They, they sold some of their land, which is great. They decided that they could benefit from it, though, in more ways than one. They thought if, if, we, if we sell the money and we, we give all to the church, well, then we look like really spiritual people. That's, that's a great thing. Everyone respect and love us. But what about this? If, 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 we, if we sell the land and we give some of the money to the church, maybe, maybe even most of it, and they look at us and they go, yeah, uh, this, is, this is great. We just see spiritual growth happening in our church, and this generosity is amazing, and we get the credit for that. That's great. But we can have some of the money left over and keep it. No one has to know. They'll still respect us, and we'll still have a little bit to live off of, maybe. In a sense, they were playing Christian, weren't they? It seemed that they that for them, being a Christian was, was less about surrendering hearts fully in worship to God and more about a system that could be manipulated here. They pretended to be totally committed to Christ and to his church, but really it was just a cover for their selfishness and for their insincerity. Genius, right? <laughs> Maybe not. Look at what happens next in verse 3. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? To keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Well, it remained unsold. Did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, what is it not at your disposal? Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. Peter says, why weren't you honest here? Keeping back some of the money? It, it's your money. You could do whatever you want with it. Instead, you lied. And not just to me, you lied to, to God. No, notice what Peter says here. There's a very interesting phrase. He says, Satan has filled your heart. Isn't this exactly the opposite of what believing Christians are supposed to be filled by? We're to be filled with the Holy Spirit, are we not? As we mentioned earlier in our series, there's a big difference between the baptism of the Holy Spirit, something that happens the moment you place your trust in Jesus Christ, you repent of your sin, trust in him, you are baptized in the Holy Spirit, he comes and indwells you, and you are now united with the rest of the body of believers who have that same baptism. You are now the, the physical representation of Christ here on earth as his spirit dwells within you collectively. But being filled with the spirit, well, that means living in sync with God's, with God's spirit and how he would desire you to think and, and live in a Christ-like way. That wasn't what was going on with Ananias and Sapphira, was it? Rather than, than submitting to what was right and good and trusting God to provide the very best for them, they took to scheming and devising their own plan to get ahead. <laughs> That's not any different than what happens all the way back in Genesis 3, is it? You might say that Adam and Eve 
were filled with Satan, that is the lies of the serpent, as they made a conscious decision to defy their good creator. It's exactly what happens every time that we toy around with the lies the enemy brings to us. And maybe we're seeking our own advancement or, or pleasure or satisfaction or security or significance or any number of other things that we might be pursuing. But we're doing it outside of God's revealed plan and design. We live in a world that exalts an individualism, that exalts self-expression. It tells us the real path of lasting joy and satisfaction, it's found by following the, the dream that is, that is buried down in your heart, in your heart's desires. That's where it's at. Find your own path, do it your way, and don't let anyone else tell you otherwise or, or stand in your way for that matter. They're just, a, they're just an obstacle to be eliminated. But when it comes down to it, it's really just another way of saying, let the spirit of Satan fill your heart. You know what the spirit of Satan says? He says, have it your way, not God's way. It's time we call it what it is. Is it possible to be a genuine believer and have Satan fill your heart the way we're describing right here? I think it is. It's completely incongruent with the Holy Spirit who indwells us, yes. There's no fellowship that light has with darkness, that's true. And yet it's possible for believers to suppress the truth that they know and willingly submit themselves into the hands and influence of someone who is not their savior and not their maker. Isn't this why Paul tells us to put on the whole armor of God? That we might be able to withstand the spiritual forces of evil? He, he wrote, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And if you're like me, you may, you may have read uh, Frank Peretti's book, This Present Darkness, and you get this vivid picture of angels and demons fighting it out, and it's incredible, it's spectacular, and you go... Man, if Hollywood could make a real good movie, maybe Spielberg could get a hold of this. This could be amazing. But the real battle that goes on is far less spectacular. Maybe the angels and demons are actually raging here, but it, but it, it, it transpires in, in the voices we're listening to inside of our heads and our hearts, and they're waging war against each other. Truth is being spoken and lies are come crashing in. And there's that collision point, that moment of truth where we have to decide, are we going to listen to the truth or are we going to listen to lies? Were Ananias and Sapphira genuine believers? I think there's reason to believe that they were. They were certainly counted among the congregation of those who believes. That's what Luke tells us in Acts 4.32. But they entertained lies. 
They decided to walk down a path that was not the way of Christ and said, Satan fills their hearts. What about you? What about me? Who's filling us? Whose voice are we listening to? We put on smiles and we give these pre-recorded answers when we're asked how we're doing. <laughs> Sometimes we, we think this, this, little, this little white lie, it, it's, just, it's, just, it's really for the good of everybody here. And we might think that as long as this decision doesn't, doesn't really hurt anyone, well, then it really doesn't matter. But I think this passage is telling us we must never forget that compromise, be it ever so small, is not something that goes unnoticed by the God who dwells within and knows us through and through. When you look at Ananias and Sapphira, I've wrestled with this passage for years, you look at them and you go, the, the money was theirs. What is the big deal here? They just want to be generous. And so they told a little white lie. Boy, we need to be aware that sin is never something that we just do to each other as well, don't we? All sin is an affront to God. And that's why Peter asked, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. That's why it's so significant. You've lied to God. It's one thing to lie to someone out there. But you lie to Christ's body. Spirit-filled individuals. That's serious. But it's serious... Not because of the dignity of these people. It's serious because of the holiness of God and the depth and, 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 and expense of the payment that was given so that you might be brought into the family of God. There's the weightiness. Look at what happens next. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. Great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and, and carried him out and, and buried him. Ananias buys the farm. Instantly. He's gone. They wrap him up. They bury him. For those of us who are going, whoa, that's really quick. But yeah, I got to realize that in Jewish traditions, they buried their, their dead the same day. Especially when it was determined that the death was the result in, in some way of, of God's judgment. But the story's not over, is it? We have verse 7. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me. Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. Can you believe it? Unaware. She didn't know what happened to her husband. Sapphira, a good partner in crime. What a great wife. She keeps the story consistent. Ananias would have been so proud. <laughs> but it's not a good idea to do this when the person that you are lying to has the spirit in him, helping him discern what's actually going on here. Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, 
and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. What an astonishing, disturbing story. What a, what, a, what a frightening thing to have witnessed. It's completely understandable why the people were afraid, probably asking themselves, am I the real deal? Is my, is my worship to God, is it sincere? Am I, am I putting on some type of show here? Am, am, I, am I just playing Christian? Am I pretending to be Christian? One scholar writes, God's strong desire for a pure church and his willingness to take drastic steps to achieve that desire were obvious for all to see. I think it's very fair to say that God does not want a church full of pretenders, but people who truly love him. It's easy for us to look down at Ananias and Sapphira, isn't it? That's the way the junior high kids did it. <laughs> what morons. What a bunch of losers. Boy, they learned their lesson. How often do we find ourselves doing the very same things? We can, we can pretend to worship. I don't know if you're like me. There have been how many times in my life I've, I've caught myself thinking so much more about the people around me and next to me and what they think of me and should I raise my hands or, or, or what if I scratch my head or, 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 or do they like my singing? Maybe they're impressed by my singing. Is this some worship? We might pretend to have clean mouths, <laughs> talk in the way that we think that Christians should talk at church, but then find ourselves at school or at work or even at home talking in a very different way. We might pretend to listen to God's word, take it to heart, but then live in any way that we want as soon as we leave the parking lot. We play Christian as we straddle this fence with one foot in the kingdom ruled by God and the other in the old rebellious ways of the old life. And all the while, God says, I want, I want all of you on my side. None of this half in, half out stuff. None of this neither hot nor cold kind of lukewarm Christian thing. I put my spirit in you so that I might have all of you. So that you might love me with, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and all of your mind. I know you memorized that verse. I really mean it. This is the greatest commandment. This is what it's all about. This is why Christ came and I saved you. Not just so that you get the ticket and go have a free-for-all, but so that you might be this truly, sincerely. No pretenders. I desire genuine, grade-A, Christ-filled believers. That's at least what he made clear to the, the church in the presence of Ananias and, and Sapphira. Does God punish people in, in, the, in 
in this way today, someone might say, well, you know, too, too bad for them. Fortunately, you know, we don't have to really worry about God striking us dead. That proverbial bolt of lightning doesn't seem to strike very often. And yet, well, we may not have to be worried about God striking us dead. At least we don't see that very often. I know for, for myself personally, I've gotten away with miles of offenses. And yet there is a certain kind of death that we should be concerned about, isn't there? People today often suffer a different kind of death for pretending to be good Christians. It's, it's like a, a spiritual kind of death. It's a spiritual stagnation. And we see this all over the American church. I'm sure all over the worldwide church. Whereas if they stopped playing games, they could enjoy the benefits of growing closer to God, of experience this intimacy that you were designed to have, more and more of it, see incredible things happen in their lives. Instead, they choose to stunt their Christian growth and be satisfied to merely play Christian. And if that's not bad enough, there's even a worse possibility, and that's the one where so-called Christians, they... they uh, they have this comfort level of, of the hypocrisy that they, they enjoy. But their hypocrisy is actually an indicator that they're actually, they were actually never spirit-filled in the first place. That their conversion wasn't even real. They just fooled themselves into thinking they were part of this, this, this cool hangout thing we got going here called the church. And James warns us about faith and works, and faith that is deprived of works is, is dead. If you don't live a life that, that shows evidence of God actually indwelling you and transforming you, there's a possibility there's a possibility that you don't belong to God at all. We need to take that seriously. What are our lives? What are the motivations of our hearts, the words that develop on our tongues, and the things that we do that no one else can see? What do they say about our faith? Let's be people who put pretending in the past. We did that enough as children, didn't we? I did enough. It's time for us to be the real deal. By the grace of God and the power of his Holy Spirit, let's be people, the people that we were saved to be. Let's love the Lord our God with all of our hearts and souls and minds. Let's love e each other as Christ loved us. And let's boldly proclaim to a watching world the salvation that is found in no, none other than the strong and living name of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we just uh, we humbly come before you. And we seek your forgiveness, Father. Because we know what goes on in our hearts. And we read of a man named Ananias, a woman named Sapphira. And we see what they did. It's laid plain for, for all believers after them to see here. 
and we're gripped with conviction, recognizing that so very often the very same type of thoughts, the very same type of motivations fill our hearts. Father, I pray that you would cleanse your people, that you would refine us, that we might be a pure church, a holy church, one that is sincere in our love for each other, sincere in our love for you, that as we go and we proclaim Christ to the nations that war and rage against your kingdom, Lord, that that might be genuine, come from pure hearts that sincerely desire that others might come to know you, be forgiven and washed clean and transformed. Undeserving people, Lord, might be brought into the wealth of your kingdom, just as we have been. Father, would you, your spirit, do a powerful work in your people? Lord, it's so easy for us to pray for revival. We'd love to see revival here in our nation. We know that revival needs to happen. We see the wickedness that goes on all around us. We see, we just saw decisions that were made in our own state that are heartbreaking. We want that change. But Lord, thank you for this reminder that you've given us that that change needs to start first within us. So change us. Refine us. Thank you for making us your people. Protect your people. Build your people. Embolden your people. And may your people, Lord, bring glory to you and good to everyone we come in contact with. We love you. We thank you. In Christ's name, amen.